when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. During the Boer War, some of Britain's best-known writers headed down to South Africa at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, to take part in, to watch, to report on this great imperial conflict that was going on on the southern tip of Africa. Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, Mary Kingsley, they all went there and they all had fascinating experiences down there, which Sarah Lefanu has gathered together. It is such an interesting story, this. These three very different authors with very different motivations going to this huge theatre of conflict and the experiences they had down there. And how those experiences shaped their subsequent writing and the world. Fascinating stuff, guys. You're going to love this episode. If you want to go to History Hit TV to get the new Netflix for history, you just go to historyhit.tv, use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. Then you get a month for free. And then you get a second month, just $1, pound, euro, you name it. That gets you access to hundreds of history documentaries, hours of audio, lots of good stuff. Head over there and do it right after listening to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. This is such an interesting idea, looking at these three most famous and celebrated novelists at the time all go out to South Africa during the Boer War. What were they doing there? Yeah, well, it is kind of extraordinary, really. When I embarked on this project, I didn't realise that these three were in South Africa during the Boer War at exactly the same time. So it kind of it was just amazingly serendipitous and seemed to grow kind of richer and richer the more that I looked at so the three writers are Rudyard Kipling, Arthur Conan Doyle and Mary Kingsley. And they were there at the same time, but for different but overlapping reasons. So Kipling was there very much because he was very invested in the Boer War. He was very invested in the imperialist vision that was one of the motivating forces behind it. He'd been to South Africa before and he'd become very friendly with, he'd become very close to Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes at that point was hugely important in South Africa and it was his imperialist vision that set things under train to a certain extent. So Kipling was there for those political reasons. Conan Doyle was there for similar but slightly different reasons because although the war, you know, one of the motivating forces behind the war was an imperialist vision which was to kind of expand across South Africa and later across the whole of Africa. The reason that Conan Doyle was there was he wished to defend and stand up for the quite large numbers of 
foreign people and British people who had been attracted by the gold mines in the Witwatersrand in the Boer Republic of the Transvaal. They'd been there for some time. They'd been, to a certain extent, protesting for greater rights as citizens in the Transvaal. And their position was, I think, used as an excuse for the prosecution of the war because it was felt by some people that it was unfair that they shouldn't have the same political rights as Boas did. That was really why Conan Doyle went. He was full of a kind of patriotic fervour and he wished to stand up for the people that he saw as the underdogs. This was not something that was kind of generally accepted in Britain. And in fact, Conan Doyle was at great odds with his mother who was very against the war. In a similar way, Kipling was at great odds with his aunt Georgie Byrne-Jones, who thought that it was a horrific imperialist war and that he shouldn't have anything to do with it. So that's the two of those. How old are the two men at that time? Arthur Conan Doyle was 40. And is he pre-Sherlock Holmes? No. (laughs) He's in the middle of Sherlock Holmes. He's already got rid of Sherlock Holmes once. So seven years previously, he chucked him over the edge of the Reichenbach Falls and thought, right, I'm free of him forever. However, as you know, Sherlock Holmes was resurrected, and that happened fairly soon after Doyle got back from South Africa. And then how about Kipling? So Kipling was younger. Kipling was 36, perhaps. So they were young men, and Mary Kingsley was of an age as well. They were young men, kind of in the primes of their life, and Kipling was, you know, hugely famous and very much seen as being an important part of the war effort. When war broke out in October 1899, he wrote a poem called The Absent-Minded Beggar, which was published by the Daily Mail and was used to raise money for the soldiers' dependents, for the girls they left behind them, for their wives and children, the soldiers who were sent off on a shilling a day to South Africa. And it raised an enormous amount of money. It raised a quarter of a million pounds in those days. So, you know, an enormous amount of money now. And he became hugely famous and was very, very popular with, as it were, the rank-and-file soldiers who saw him as a man of the people and, you know, and somebody who was kind of easy with them. So when he got to South Africa, he spent a lot of time visiting the wounded in the hospitals and writing letters that they dictated and handing out tobacco and tins of cocoa and blankets and things like that. Mary Kingsley was the opposite in many ways. She probably knew Africa better than both those two gents put together, did she? She most certainly did. But South Africa wasn't her main concern. Her main concern was West Africa, where she'd spent a considerable amount of time in the 1890s, travelling, exploring, being an ethnographer, writing about the customs, the laws, the religious beliefs that she came across, and trading with the people who lived there. And for her, West Africa was a kind of place of freedom that she hadn't found in England and she yearned to go back there and she wasn't particularly interested in what was going on in South Africa I think she saw it as you know a war that had been confected by the politicians in Britain and with the backing of the politicians in South Africa of Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner who was high commissioner there and that was the kind of world that she wished to dear clear of It was a world that made her feel constrained and unhappy. So in a way, her going to South Africa, what she hoped to do was to return to West Africa after she'd been in South Africa. However, she didn't manage that because she died in South Africa and she died of typhoid, which affected all three of them, Kipling and Doyle. But Mary Kingsley 
fatally. She died in June 1900 and was buried at sea off Cape Point. She was extraordinarily tough. She sort of did first ascents of various mountains and things like that, didn't she? I mean, was she in South Africa like the other two to write or was she there to play a more active part? I think that all three of them were there, being writers, all three of them were there partly to write. You know, those kinds of writers who, any experience, they then have to write about it either at the time or afterwards. I mean, Conan Doyle, in fact, was writing his history of the Great Boer War while it was unfolding and had to kind of add on bits after it had been published as it went on for much longer than anybody had realised it was going to go on for. So they were all three there to write. She was also there. She was also a natural scientist. She looked for and collected specimens of flora and fauna to take back to the Natural History Museum in London. So she went with their imprimatur as well. They were all of them there for multifactorial reasons. And perhaps the other thing that I should say is they all three of them had personal reasons for going there. Mary Kingsley had become very involved in something called the hut tax crisis in Sierra Leone, in which the colonial government, the British government, decided to impose a hut tax on the people who lived in Sierra Leone. And she campaigned vigorously against it because she saw how it militated against every tradition of how property was seen in West Africa. And in fact, the hut tax did indeed lead to the hut tax war with bloodshed on either side and the raising of whole villages by the colonial administration. And she began to feel that all her arguments were falling on deaf ears. I think she felt disappointed by the way that she was a lone voice standing up for the rights of the people of West Africa. To a certain extent, she was keen to get out of England. She was keen to flee England. But I mean, I think everybody, whenever they go anywhere to war or anywhere, there's always some kind of personal element to it too. Everybody has their own kind of private reasons for travelling or for getting away or for going to experience something new, new adventures. What did they do when they were there? Were they, in a modern sense, war correspondents? Did they embed, they follow the troops around or did they just report completely independent? Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mary Kingsley went, although I've said that she went as an actual scientist and as a writer, she primarily went as a nurse. I mean, she was actually officially appointed by the War Office to be a nurse. And when she arrived in Cape Town, she was posted to a hospital for Boer prisoners of war. It was quite soon after one of the early battles of the war, the Battle of Paderberg, which was the first battle in which the Boers were trounced. They'd spent 10 days dug into the banks of the Modder River with Lord Kitchener kind of raining hellfire on them. And they were weakened, they were starved, and typhoid was rife. So she was sent down to a place called Simonstown, which is just on the south side of the peninsula from Cape Town, to look after them. That was her posting, and that was what she did. And she wrote about her experiences there, and that was where she caught typhoid and she knew very well that that was what it was that she had got. Conan Doyle tried to enlist in Britain because he felt that it was his duty to go but was turned down probably because he was 40 and he was quite large as well. He was 16 stone and they said thank you but no thank you. So then he picked up his stethoscope and applied to one of the field hospitals. There were a number of private field hospitals that were being organised. And he applied to one of them, which was run by an old friend of his called John Langman. And he went out as one of the surgeons with the Langman's field hospital. And they were posted up to Blomfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State, which had just fallen to the British in the middle of March. And he arrived in Blomfontein. He just missed meeting up with Kipling there by about... 12 hours because Kipling had been there working as one of the editors on a newspaper that had been taken over by Lord Roberts who was CNC of the Imperial troops and turned into a newspaper for the army and he'd been up there for the last fortnight having a huge amount of fun. I mean Kipling had worked as a journalist before when he was a young man in India. He'd spent what he called seven years hard as a journalist but he hadn't done it since then, and he loved the camaraderie that he found there, and he loved the smells of the ink and the dust and the joy of, you know, writing little stories to cheer up the wounded troops. So they were both in Domfontaine, one as a journalist, one as a surgeon, while Mary Kingsley was five or six hundred miles away working as a nurse. Did any of the three change their opinions, which they had held upon going to South Africa, after viewing evidence on the ground. I think that Mary Kingsley definitely became more sympathetic to the Boers and to what the Boers wanted. She recognised very early on that they saw the British as 
basically wanting to steal their land. And she was very interested in questions of land and how important it was for the people who lived on it. She'd seen that in West Africa. I think she hadn't been aware of that before she arrived in South Africa. And that was what she learned from the Boer patients that she was nursing. Well, it's quite interesting, really. I mean, because in one way, he became increasingly jingoistic. He became increasingly a warmonger. But at the same time, he was absolutely horrified by the way that the war was being prosecuted in terms of how the army was structured. And both he and Conan Doyle became extremely critical of the kind of old-style, you know, gentleman's mess, colonels in their frock coats. I think that Doyle later wrote about the gold lace and the frippery and how the army needed to be reformed away from that kind of 19th or even earlier, kind of 18th century idea of gentlemen going to war. You know, it was obvious to anybody who was there that that kind of old-style army didn't work terribly well against this new kind of enemy, that is, the Bows, who were basically running a guerrilla campaign against the British and were extremely well-armed and extremely mobile, whereas the British army was lumbering around over terrain that it didn't know, moving goods and material up on single-track railways, whereas the Bowers were running circles round them on their little South African ponies that they'd grown up with. It was an eye-opener for both those men. However... Kipling remained invested in it and he became very, very bitter. The deal that was done, the Treaty of Vereniging, at the end of the war, because he saw it as basically giving into or rewarding the Boers who he had seen as traitors. So that actually bolstered their aggressive imperialism, well, certainly in the case of Kipling. I think in the case of Kipling, yes. A lot of the dispatches that he wrote, I mean, some of the dispatches that he wrote, you know, being Kipling, they were marvellously descriptive of landscape and so on. But a number of the dispatches that he wrote, which were increasingly angry against the Boers and against the way that he thought that the British were were kind of falling over themselves to be nice to them, they weren't terribly well received back in Britain. I mean, people thought that he was becoming hysterical about it. With Conan Doyle, when he came back, okay, he felt that it was his duty to relieve people of their misconceptions about what had been happening. And he was particularly incensed by the way that so many European countries had basically been on the side of the Boers and had seen the British as being greedy bullies, I think you could probably say. So he did spend a certain amount of time trying to persuade them otherwise. But he was a man who's mind quite capacious and he liked to move on from one thing to another thing and he fairly soon found other causes into which to put his energy. The cause of a young mixed-race lawyer who lived in Shropshire who had been falsely accused of various hideous crimes involving horses and it was fairly obvious, well certainly obvious to Conan Doyle, that he'd been framed and that the police were closing ranks. The man's name was Georgia Dalgy. And Conan Doyle threw himself into a campaign to clear his name, which took a long time, but he was eventually successful. So that was the first thing that he did. And then the second thing that he really put his energies into was the Congo Reform Association, which had been set up by a friend of Mary Kingsley's called E.D. Morell and involved other friends of hers, an Irish historian and nationalist called Alice Stopford Green. And both of those people were, to a certain extent, I believe, inspired by... Mary Kingsley's legacy and then Conan Doyle 
wrote this short book pamphlet, The Crime of the Congo, using the evidence brought back by Roger Casement, and it had an enormous effect in opening people's eyes to what was going on in the Congo under the regime of King Leopold II of Belgium, that is, the atrocities, the torture and the massacres. So Kingsley's legacy becomes entangled with Conan Doyle's, but of the three writers, who do you think leaves behind the most important legacy? Obviously, Kipling goes on to become very important during the First World War, but do you think Conan Doyle and Kingsley's legacy has proved more enduringly important? I think that probably... Kingsley's legacy and Conan Doyle's legacy in terms of what he did for the Congo Reform Association is more important. Kipling's legacy, I think, is a really important one, but I don't think that it has anything to do with his experiences in the South African War. I mean, Kipling's legacy is important in terms of his literary genius, I would say, and the way that so many of his words and phrases have entered into our language so that we use them without even knowing about them. Many of his opinions were hideous. And in fact, somebody, one of the Kipling critics, said that Kipling was a great hater, and he was. And I don't think that haters leave a great legacy like that. So I think that his legacy really is a literary one. I would say that Conan Doyle's legacy, I mean, he believed that his legacy was his involvement with the cause of spiritualism, because he had been interested in that for a long time. When he came back from South Africa, he became increasingly interested in that. And he spent the latter part of his life, having resurrected Sherlock Holmes, he nonetheless spent the latter part of his life travelling around giving talks about the other side, about contact with the other side. And indeed, he returned to South Africa, where he was a little bit shocked to see, for example, the monuments to the thousands of Boer women and children who had died in the British concentration camps and realised that the Boers actually blamed the British for that when he was thinking, you know, what's all this? It was something that had never really occurred to him. But he was back there talking about spiritualism, and spiritualism, he thought, was the reason that he was put on this earth. Now, of course, most people nowadays think that the reason Conan Doyle was put on this earth was so that he could create Sherlock Holmes and entertain us all for centuries afterwards. <laughs> and I think that I kind of rather agree with that. feels like Kingsley was the one that was on the right side of history. I think she was. Perhaps it was because she was less trammelled by being a respectable man in late Victorian England. I think that possibly those kind of ideals of masculinity that were around then, perhaps blinkered one's view a little bit and she was outside that kind of society she was a woman there wasn't space for her and maybe that allowed her to see a bit more clearly the way that things were going and the way that they could go which is not to say that she was not an imperialist herself they all three were it was just that she had ideas about how people should be allowed to create the structures of their own societies well, thank you very much indeed. Really, really fascinating story. Your book is called... My book's called Something of Themselves, Kipling, Kingsley, Conan Doyle and the Anglo-Boer War. And it's published by Hurst & Co. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, it was a real pleasure. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you. I feel the history of our country. 
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.